Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, and welcome to episode nine of Sheep Thrills. Boy, oh boy. We've got a lot to talk about today. Um, happy Saturday morning. I hope everyone is doing extremely well. Everyone had a great week. Uh, today on the show, we are going to talk about, we're doing our, our bi-weekly union update, and so I can rant about collective bargaining for 20 minutes, and nobody can tell me to be quiet. It's such a powerful thing having a radio show that I research and then do all by myself. Nobody can tell me to be quiet, except for my family members, after I stop recording. And then they text me, and they're like, you went on a little long about that. Um, anyway, we're going to talk about unions, um, including a new Amazon union, updates around Starbucks unionization, and more. It's, it's, it's back. We're talking about it. Um, plus, we're going to go through some of the major hits from Congress's very busy week. There's a lot to talk about there. Plus, two contenders for... Um, crazy political story of the week that I couldn't, there were just too many things to talk about. And so those are kind of shoehorned into the Congress section. But there's some there's some good stories from this week, um, for sure. And then last but not least, we are going to kind of extend our, our fun political story of the week. Um, and it's going to be a full story because it is just too good. Um, and I'm going to leave it as a little, I mean, it's, it's, it's not that like wild and insane, but it is very funny, but it is also out of the great state of New Jersey. Um, so we'll get into that at the end. I'm very excited to talk about that particular story because I've been watching it unfold all week and it's brought me an inordinate amount of joy. Um, I am obsessed with this woman that we're going to talk about at the end of the show. But with all that being said, we're just going to jump right into it. Um, so first things first, I want to talk about the Amazon union that just um, just got created yesterday, basically. So workers at Amazon's Staten Island Fulfillment Center won their union last night, much to pretty much everyone's surprise. Uh, it was the first successful U.S. organizing um, effort at Amazon. Um, and it's just like generally seen as like an extremely major step, both for the um, labor movement within Amazon and then also the kind of the larger domestic labor movement. Um, They've had, you know, there's been several attempts at unionization within different Amazon facilities over the past several years. You know, we've been we've been talking about Amazon's kind of bad business practices and, and poor treatment of their workers also for years. It's like very much not a surprise that these things are happening now. Um, you know, everyone, everyone knows the story about the people who reported that they, you know, couldn't take time off from the floor and so they had to you know, like, go to the bathroom in bottles and everything else, um, and, like, water bottles. So, we, like, we've seen these stories, we know these stories, we know that these kinds of organizing efforts have been kind of in talks for a long time, and there have been several unsuccessful efforts. Um, but now we have one successful unionization effort at an Amazon facility, which is pretty exciting. Um, and this is, you know, the, those those high-profile stories about... I mean, the, the reason that Amazon is such a, like, high-level target for um, unionization efforts is, like, not really a surprise. It's a huge, ginormous company, probably one of the big, I mean, probably, not even probably, it is, one of the biggest companies in the world. Um, the, all of these stories about malpractice have been so public and so high-profile. Um, and... Amazon has also been very public about their union-busting efforts. So it kind of just all came together uh, and conglomerated into this, like, perfect scene for labor uh, organizers to kind of really try to make inroads. Um, so they've been working on organizing this particular union in Staten Island for almost a full year. Um, Amazon paid over $4 million in union-busting um, services. I don't know, what else do you call it? Um, which is embarrassing for them. Embarrassing. <sighs> I love unions. And I love, you know, maybe it's just because I like, love the underdog trope. But I just think it's really great that, you know, Amazon spent $4 million trying to, I think it was like actually $4.6 million. So if I wanted to, I could round it up. But I'm not really, sh I'm not 100% sure it's 4.6. I know it's not like a flat $4 million, whatever. Um spent four, you know, $4 million attempting to bust this union and then ultimately, you know, failed against a bunch of 
you know, minimum wage employees who felt that they were being taken advantage of. And I think that's really cool. Um, and again, one of the reasons that it took so, such a long time for Amazon to successfully unionize is because of Amazon's extremely aggressive union vesting efforts. Um, and there have been several articles that have noted that working in an Amazon facility basically means that you are surveilled all the time. Um, and they have cameras everywhere and they do all of this employee monitoring and they, you know, obviously, as we know from, from the stories about kind of, you know, malpractice in Amazon, um, they, they control, you know, every, every single minute of the day when you're in an Amazon facility, they know exactly where you are. They know exactly what you're doing and they'll, you know, there, there, there'll be consequences if you're kind of not directly in line. Um, and it was, you know, it's been described as like a prison. Um, and, you know, they're, again, they're, they're basically tracking employees. Um, and so it's difficult for a myriad of reasons to do organizing when there's cameras everywhere and they can see you having conversations or they can see you kind of not exactly being where you're supposed to be and talking to people that... Oh, can you... Oh, yeah. Okay, sorry, it just looked like the... Um, Mike stopped working and I almost had a little panic attack. Um, what was I saying? Okay, so yeah, it's hard to do labor organizing when you're completely um, kind of under the thumb of the company you're trying to organize against because people are afraid of retribution. And so when you have cameras on you and when you um, know that your employer is watching you take the actions that you're taking, it's, it's a lot harder for A, organizers to organize just in general. And B, it's hard to kind of get people on board. It's hard to get people to agree to something that they might agree with otherwise, um, but are just afraid of kind of experiencing some retribution from the company. And Amazon is known to to kind of fire labor organizers and, and fire those in charge um, because they know that, you know, any kind of any kind of labor movement in Amazon is going to kind of cause a domino effect across other um, Amazon facilities and they don't clearly don't want that because they don't want to have to pay their workers higher wages. They don't want to have to, um, you know, give, give, protect their workers in, in, in better ways. But um, it's also hard specifically with Amazon. Well, you know, because with, with like corporate offices, it's easier because there's, you know, everyone knows each other's emails. There's an email list. You can kind of like do that, like coordination outside the office. At a place like Amazon, the only organization you can actually do is when everyone is in the building all together. Um, and there's also like a sh very, very high volume of, of workers. I think there's like 5 million workers that had to vote in this, um, in this uh, union vote. So trying to organize, trying to talk to 5 million, vo 5 million potential votes under the watchful eye of Big Brother, i.e. Amazon middle management, uh, it's, it's extremely hard to actually like get that, get that or organizing effort done. And, you know, Amazon does that kind of on purpose because they don't want, um, they don't want their workers to be collaborating with each other in any way. It's the same conversation about like why um, employers make it so hard for you to compare um, wages, right? Like they don't want you to be talking to your your desk neighbor about how much they're making because if you realize that you're being underpaid, you're going to demand more, um, and that's not good for the company, right? So it's it's better for the company when workers are isolated from each other um, because they can't compare stories. They can't say, oh, you had a bad experience with that. Um, management person. I also had a bad experience about management person. Is this actually not an isolated incident, but a, uh, you know, a, a series of events, uh, like a pattern of behavior? So again, when workers are isolated, it's easier for businesses to take advantage of them. Um, and the, the, the point of unions and the point of collective bargaining is to eliminate those barriers and eliminate that isolation in order for workers to come together and organize um, um, for their own collective benefit. Soapbox. Uh-oh. But anyway, they officially got their vote on the union in Staten Island last night. Um, it won, uh, with a tally of four, excuse me, 2,654 in favor and 2,131 opposed. And they will now need to ratify the contract, which is going to be a pretty big fight. Um, it's probably going to take several, several more months. Um, but they have been gearing up for that fight for a pretty long time. 
Um, the 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 main leader of the um, movement is a man named Christian Smalls, who was fired from the the Staten Island Amazon facility um, back eleven months ago when he criticized the company for their lack of COVID protections, uh, and ultimately he was fired for that. And he's been kind of working on creating this union. He's been very aggressive in his unionization efforts um, over over the past over the past year. And the great quote that came out of this was, we want to thank Jeff Bezos for going up to space because while he was up there, we were organizing a union. And I think that's a great quote. Because, dang, you know, it just, it, you know, it just goes to show, you know, the, the difference in priorities between normal people and, um, yeah, normal people and, and the Jeff Bezos of the world. Um, Anyway, so the, this one other interesting story is that there's another Amazon facility in Alabama that voted um, last night or this week, but their vote actually failed um, because their, their vote failed, but there was a number of contested ballots um, that could change the result. Um, and so this is, you know, they're, they're still kind of waiting on the, on the actual tally. Um, the, it, this, the, the first time that they voted at this facility, it's actually the second time they voted, um, NLRB stated that Amazon had unfairly intervened in the process and they because they had basically put the 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 mailbox like the USPS mailbox that everyone was going to put their votes into and like send their votes off in the direct view of a camera. <laughs> so they're like, yeah, definitely go vote for the union. We're totally do whatever you guys want, vote whichever way you want, but also if you do vote um I am going to watch you and I'm going to mark down every single one of you that goes up to the mailbox. Um, so they had stated that putting the putting the mailbox for votes directly in front of cameras essentially hijacked the process because people, again, don't want to be targeted for retribution because they're afraid of losing their jobs. That's what this is all about. This is all about people protecting their jobs and protecting their wages and protecting their well-being. Um, and when, you know, they, they have to do that risk management and they have to say, um, you know, am I going to get in more trouble? Am I, is there going to be more of a cost for me to vote for this union and potentially, you know, experience some retribution because of it um, than kind of just like keeping my like bad work conditions the way they are? It's a pretty interesting, pretty interesting conversation. Um, and Amazon is already starting to, you know, combat the vote in Staten Island by saying that the Chamber of Congress and NLRB had too great a role in the process. Um, and basically it was like unfair because they were like, well, NLRB was on, the, was on the union side and therefore blah, blah, blah. Um, you can see how I feel about that. You can see how I feel about that. Um, but officials have, have stated that quote, all NL, all NLRB enforcement actions against Amazon have been consistent with their congressional mandate. Um, so they're basically saying, no, you can say all you want about the fact that we had too great a role in the process, but it's not true. Be quiet and let them make their union. Um, so, uh, th again, this is going to cause a, a cascading effect at other Amazon warehouses. Amazon wasn't able, you know, Amazon workers weren't able to gain traction before just because I think there wasn't a success story yet within, um, within an Amazon facility. But now that they have one facility, they're going to start kind of gaining that traction. There's institutional framework and success. Um, those labor organizers are going to be able to say, here's what worked for us and here's, here's what didn't, which is really, really important to any kind of organizing movement to kind of have that institutional knowledge, have that institutional framework, and then again, be able to pass that along to other people down the line. Um, you know, once um, unions exist across plants, once, once there's uh, you know, tons of unions across the Northeast and across the, the country, whatever, it's going to be a lot easier for them to apply direct pressure, not only on the management of their individual, you know, firms, their individual plants, but also to kind of go one step ahead and put, put a greater amount of pressure on upper management and upper leadership, like one Jeffrey Bezos himself. Um, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be easier once there's a broad swath of unions to actually, you know, create some some institutional strategic change rather than um, kind of one one kind of one facility at a time, um, kind of doing that broader overarching pressure rather than that individual pressure. 
Um, and also, just in general, as I've said, every single time I talk about unions, every single time, you know, if you'll remember Striketober from a couple months ago, every single time I talk about this, we talk about the fact that the um, labor market has changed in really profound ways because of the pandemic. Um, the power is falling in the hands of the workers. There's 11 million job openings as of February. I know that the March jobs report came out the other day. I haven't really looked at it, only briefly, but... Um, you know, people aren't going to go back to jobs that aren't going to pay them a living wage, that don't have adequate COVID protections or COVID policies, um, and ultimately jobs that won't treat them with dignity and respect. And as people have said online, like, it's a seller's market. The labor market is a seller's market, and th therefore the power falls in the hands of those who are selling the labor, which is, by the way, the workers. Shout out to intermediate microeconomics. Um, and so this is the best chance for workers to start demanding better protections because the power in where they choose to sell their labor falls very squarely on them, um, which is very important. And then again, it's also this conversation about the stakeholder economy versus the shareholder economy. And there's a transition right now, I perceive, in a, in a, in a transition that I hope starts to emerge more, the transition from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism, um, as opposed to focusing on the well-being of investors and on management and on shareholders, companies are now more interested in protecting the, the well-being of their worker, or they well, are going to be forced to be more considerate of the well-being of their workers um, and of those who are, you know, responsible for the work that the company is able to do. And I think that's a that's again that's a pretty profound transition, uh, and I hope that all of the pressure that we're putting on on labor organizers here, or on the pressure that labor organizers are putting on companies right now, um, is enough to kind of continue continue that process forward from kind of the that that the dehumanizing, demeaning practices of the past into kind of uh, the greater protections and greater um, greater focus on well-being in the future. So that's all I want to talk about with Amazon and also just kind of overarching overarching themes here. We've got some other major labor wins that happened uh, recently as well. Also in New York yesterday, um, Starbucks, um, Starbucks Reserve Roastery in New York City, which is a pretty big location, just got their union and they are one of 10 locations in the past month that have, or the past months, plural, that have joined Workers United, which is an affiliate of the Service Employees International Union. Um, and so they've been kind of unionizing left and right here. There's several locations, several locations in New York. I believe that the reserve is the first location in New York City, but I could be wrong about that. Um, and so not only have there been those 10 um, individual unions that have been created, but there are 170 other locations that have petitioned for elections as of Friday, and then ballot counts are scheduled for more than a dozen cafes over the next few weeks. So, and and also of all of these of all of these union unionization efforts so far, um, Starbucks has only been able to beat back one of them. Um, so it's it's very much kind of. It's, you know, it's, it's exactly what I was talking about with Amazon. Now, now that they had one facility, one kind of set of, of knowledge, it was a lot harder to kind of um, to cut off that momentum once they got started. So that is very much something that is going to be, you know, something that we're going to continue to watch and pay attention to. Um, and it's also a very, just a very interesting case study because, um, you know, there is kind of an overarching management for, um, Starbucks, but it's, you know, the conversation around, well, there is an overarching management, but the more important thing is the fact that they're all, you know, they're all technically like, you know, Starbucks partners. So they're all, you know, franchises. Um, so they all have kind of individual management structures and what is it going to look like when there's, if there's an overarching union, um, for specifically Starbucks, um, cafes. So we'll continue to watch that as well. But anyway, there was two, basically the point of that is there were two major labor wins in New York City, if you consider Staten Island New York City. <laughs> um, two major labor wins in New York yesterday. Um, and so the, the New York City politicians are all very excited. The New York City labor organizers are all very excited. But anyway, um, also in New York unions, because there's a lot of 
businesses in New York, we realize. Um, the New York Times has been working on a union um, that will join the News Guild of New York. Um, I think that union is not necessarily just journalists, but I think it's all like digital artists and data analysis people, like a lot of people that are kind of on the like the back end side. Um, but I think the number I saw there was like 600 New York Times employees are going to be are going to be joining the News Guild of New York, which is pretty exciting. And then also, um, Vogue, Bon Appetit, and other Condé Nast staffers are all forming a union. Um, they have ne- just this past week asked the management to voluntarily recognize that union, um, and they also would be joining the News Guild of New York. Um, those leading the effort have said that uh, about 80% of eligible workers are currently in support of those efforts, um, which is pretty crazy. I don't know. I mean, I think I think to say 80%. I mean, it's 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 hard to get eighty percent of anyone to do anything, so it'll be interesting to see if if they're managed if they manage to to do that. And then I think it's also interesting that they're kind of creating an overarching like Condé Nast union, considering like all of the different um, all the different groups that kind of fall under Condé Nast right now, including Vogue, Bon Appetit, Vogue, um, Teen Vogue, like all those different. Obviously, Teen Vogue and Vogue both belong to the same management company it's early guys it's early um so if you'll remember also that the the bon appetit drama of last year last not last summer but the summer was it two years ago a year and a half ago oh my gosh wow time really flies when you're not having that much fun (laughs) um if you remember the bon appetit drama of however long ago it was um, you'll remember we've been having conversations around equity in Condé Nast for a very long time. The, the specific story basically had to do with people of color not being paid as much, not being as respected, kind of just experiencing a lot of inequality and a lot of discrimination in Bon Appetit. And it's kind of caused this the major reckoning there, like an extremely popular YouTube channel that just like, I don't think it's as popular anymore. Um, and they had this like extremely dedicated fan base. Um, for all the people that they featured on this YouTube channel that kind of kind of dissolved away um, just because they were not treating all of their all of their employees with the same you know equity and respect that they deserve and also this goes back to my previous point um, you know they they were afraid to talk about it they didn't talk about their wages they didn't talk about how much they were you know being paid for certain things and ultimately it came out that they were you know certain workers were being extremely underpaid um, or extre- you know, extremely neglected for the you know, equal work that they were doing. They weren't able to talk about it. Once they did talk about it, they said, I'm not doing this for you anymore. And they left. And now we have this group creating this union so that they don't have to kind of be concerned about, about those inequalities in the future, or those in- inequities in the future. Um, and uh, yeah, good for them. Good for all of them. And I'm proud of them. And I love them. And I support them. And I hope that their unionization efforts are fruitful and successful and that management voluntarily recognize their union and gives them all of the um, all of the the contract items they want. That is my manifestation for them. Shout out unions. Okay, we're going to move on from this story and we're going to talk about congressional news. So we had a very busy week. Uh, in and around Capitol Hill, they voted uh, f- all five days, or at least the House did. I don't know about the Senate. I only pay attention to the House schedule. Um, but they, the House at least voted every day this week. Um, and so things were very busy. Lots of things happening, um, including, yeah, we're going to get to it. But there, yeah, just like a lot going on on the Hill this week. But a couple big updates that it is important we talk about. First of all, as I talked about last week, they are currently in a fight uh, regarding COVID funding and about kind of creating a separate um, appropriations bill just for um, COVID money. Um, as, as we said last week, it was very much an uphill battle because they were not sure if they were going to be able to get anyone from the Senate on their side on these things. Um, but as of this week, tentatively, senators have agreed to a smaller COVID emergency aid package, which is valued at $10 billion dollars from the original value, which we talked about last week, which was $15.6 billion, which is also down from the White House's initial request of $22.5 billion. 
So things have been tightened. Things have been cut out. Um, and at this point, the, the main chunk of money that they've removed um, have been was money that's going towards global vaccine distribution, which is a major sticking point for a lot of members of Congress, um, including they mentioned Tom Malinowski of New Jersey a lot in the news um, about this. He's a former State Department. He has some he has some foreign affairs experience. But anyway, so this is kind of a major sticking point for um, for a lot of a lot of members of the House. So we're going to kind of get into that in a little bit. But um, so Biden is still going to support the package, but there's certainly something to be said, kind of explicitly cutting this out of the package. Um, We've talked about this in the past, I believe, on this show, or maybe it's just something I've talked about in classes or just ranted to myself in my brain and never actually articulated outside of my head. It's it's entirely possible. I have no idea at this point. Um, everything blends together. Um, but everyone is so gung-ho for sending military support places because it's, it's just, okay, members of, let me clarify, let me clarify this. Members of Congress are extremely supportive of sending military aid anywhere they want because it makes them look strong. It makes them look look tough on tough on dictatorship, tough on China, whatever you want to say. Um, but the the reality of the fact is that humanitarian aid does not have that much of a punch, it does not have that much of a, a kind of a, a profound impact because it's quiet. It's nice that they're giving that they're that they want to put federal funds in place to kind of produce enough COVID vaccines to send to developing countries that don't have the infrastructure to, to develop vaccines. It's a good thing. It doesn't directly affect America, except for, yes, it does. We'll get into that. Um, it doesn't directly affect American citizens, but it is, you know, it's a significant thing that as global economic and political and military leaders, you know, we do probably have a responsibility if we have this extra money, if we have this extra store of vaccines that we use it to kind of support support the larger community. And by larger community, I mean the world community, because we are all interconnected. Um, and also, it does, you know, it, it, in in the end, whatever, if we're going this route, it does affect um, Americans because a p- people in those developing countries who are getting COVID and getting sick and can't go to work are the ones who are producing a lot of the stuff that we need. And so if we're going to kind of rant about supply chain delays and rant about inflation and rant about increased prices, we need to do what we can to protect the entire supply chain, which, by the way, means protecting those at the beginning of the supply chain, protecting the health of those workers. You know, whatever. It all, it all goes back to protecting workers, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It's where this all circles back to. Anyway. Um, and so... Is this going to be a sticking point for is remo- the removal of these like global COVID assistance funds going to be a sticking point for members of Congress? Maybe we'll see how that goes. But um, kind of beyond that, um, Republicans also refuse to devote any new federal funding to the federal pandemic response effort. And literally in my notes, I wrote, wait, there was a federal pandemic response effort. And if that's yeah, that kind of lets you know what I think about <laughs> the CDC. Um, anyway, we, yeah, so basically they're, they're not running any more ads on, or they, you know, they're, they're going to use whatever money they have left over to run any ads they want and to, you know, because now, now they're starting to encourage people to get another booster shot. And so any kind of federal um, advertising, any kind of federal motivating effort is going to have to come from all of their reserve funds, which is pretty important. Um, and they do need to get this deal done relatively fast um, because there is only one more week that they have in session before Congress leaves for a two-week recess, which is going to be a district work period, um, meaning that they need to hammer out a deal, actually write the bill, not important, which is probably the least important part of this whole process because it's all legal jargon, um, get a CBO estimate on the bill, and then they can bring it to the to the to the floor of the house, which has a whole kind of time component anyway, where they're probably going to have to file cloture and then wait two days and like all these different things. Um, and it also again has to be has to be filibuster proof 
in the Senate, meaning that they're going to have to get 10 Republicans on board to pass, which is hmm, maybe going to happen. I don't know. But is it going to you know happen fast enough? I know, I mean, Mitt Romney is very involved in the negotiating efforts, um, but Mitch McConnell hasn't committed one way or the other. And a lot of those people that they generally consider to be those like those 10 votes when they are um you know, trying to trying to trying to get through a filibuster, uh, have not really committed one way or the other. Um, so they could be doing this whole rigmarole and then not have the votes to pass it, which would be typical. Um, and again, so they're probably gonna have to wait until reconciliation starts at the end of the year with the with fiscal year twenty three budget, and then try to shoehorn it in there. But then there's going to be the parliamentarian said this and that and the bird rule and blah, blah, blah. And we're going to, you know, we're going to get back to, to talking about that next semester. So get excited. Um, but so it's it's a whole it's a whole rigmarole within itself. Um, and we'll have to see whether or not the Senate is actually able to to pull that process off. Um, so will final agreement be reached? What are the odds of that actually getting done before April? Because again, if they don't get it done before April recess, they're not even going to start the process again until the end of the month, uh, which is when they come back. So it's it's entirely possible that they have the bill and the CBO estimate, and then they just have to vote at the end of the month. But also, you know, this is kind of important now, right? Like this is not not something that's like, oh, it's okay if we wait a couple weeks. Like uh, the situations are are rapidly changing around COVID, um, and so it is important that members of Congress actually like address the situations as they're changing, being a little bit more proactive in their response efforts, um, just in order to ward away things that could potentially be bad. There's a new variant emerging. Ah. Um, and so, you know, that's with the new variant emerging, we've got new considerations. We kind of need to get this, this new money approved now because we're also running out of that money very, very fast. Um, and when we're not able to you know, produce and give out those COVID vaccinations free of charge. Once we, once, you know, once we have to start putting people on, you know, get people to use their insurance to pay for COVID vaccines or having to pay out of pocket, it's going to be a whole thing Um, because there's so much vaccine hesitancy now that as soon as it costs money, no one's going to get the vaccine anymore. Um, Especially if we are, you know, going to have to get it like a flu shot and get it once a year. Um, If it's not, if it's not free, if it's not subsidized by the government, it's going to be a problem. And if the, government doesn't want to pay for it, it's going to be a whole thing within itself, and we're never going to be able to move on from this. And I'm going to have to wear a mask in the studio for the rest of my life, and I really don't want to do that. So, if you're listening, Senator Manchin? Senator McConnell? It'd be crazy if you were listening. If you're listening, send me a DM. Let's talk. (laughs) But if you're listening, get it done, please. Um... And then again, the other major consideration that I hinted at before um, is that it's it's entirely possible that this package will get some pushback in the House um, because it doesn't have enough provisions for international aid and it kind of just is generally much more anemic than the original plan was. Um, you know, even even Nancy Pelosi's plan, it's it's it's, it's anemic in, in considerations, 50% less basically. Um, although I don't think it'll get enough pushback not to pass because I think that this is an important enough bill. I think that a lot of members will go onto the floor and they'll say, we need more money for international aid and here's X, Y, Z reason. Um, but I think that when push comes to shove, they will vote for it. They'll probably try to push through an amendment. Um, but when push comes to shove, they will, they will probably, um, end up voting for the bill because it is relatively important that we, um, again, get this, um, pandemic aid through Congress, and we have enough money to support these efforts, and so on and so forth. Okay, cool. So the House also did pass. The House did pass some legislation this week. It was not just all. This is the 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 COVID story is the only story I'm talking about with the Senate because I can't be bothered, as you know. <laughs> um, but the House did pass some legislation this week. They they because again they were voting for five days straight, so they did actually talk about a lot of bills. Um, but the two bills that I want to talk about today, one on Thursday, the House passed the Affordable Insulin Now Act, which um, caps insulin co-pays, I believe, at $35 per month, which is pretty exciting because, um, you know, this was this was one of the um, 
Build Back Better initiatives that um, Biden was unable to get through, uh, that he really prioritized during the um, State of the Union. And so they took that momentum from the State of the Union and they and they bumped it right into, um, right in it, bumped it right into some House legislation. So that was pretty cool uh, that they were able to get that get that bill through Congress. Um, of course, I don't I don't think any Republicans voted for it. Let's see. Affordable Insulin Now Act. Congress.gov. My bestie. My absolute homie bestie. Congress.gov. I spent so much time on Congress.gov. 232 to 193, which means that, yes, some Republicans did, in fact, vote for the Affordable Insulin Now Act. Shout out to them. Yeah, 12, 12 Republicans voted yes. So we do have 12 Republicans who voted to, um, you know, cap the price of insulin. Who, And every Republican who didn't doesn't care about the diabetics. You can't see my face, but I'm grimacing slightly because it's a joke. And like it's like I am kidding, but also am I? Am I joking? I don't know. Um, but that's been a whole thing. Uh, and then the other bill that they just passed on Friday was the Moore Act, which decriminalizes marijuana, which is also pretty cool. I doubt, seriously, seriously doubt that anybody, any Republicans voted for that. But let's also check congress.gov. My, once again, my best friend. You can hear my little typing. I probably should have done this beforehand, but I was really tired last night and I didn't. On passage, no. 220 to 204. Mm, three Republicans. Three Republicans voted yes, and two Democrats voted no. So there you go. There you have it. There's That's a, that's a bipartisan bill if I've ever seen one. Um, so they did end up passing that piece of legislation. Um, the question with both of these bills, and also everything that, they, that the House has passed ever, um, is the question of like, is there, is there a path forward with these pieces of legislation? Is there going to be any air for them? Is there going to be any room for them at all once they make it to the Senate? And the answer to that is probably not. Because uh, again, the Senate won't do anything. <laughs> and they won't get anything done because they have a very, very different political reality than the House of Representatives. And um, Bill's that are just controversial, like marijuana, like the marijuana bill, like are just not going to get the kind of, um, they're not, they're not going to pull the, the same kind of Republican pressure that other kind of like less controversial bills might be able to. The insulin bill, I feel like maybe they'll be able to get a couple, a couple flip, flippy floppers, um, just because again, it's, seems really, really bad to vote against the diabetics. I don't know. I, I, maybe maybe I'm too like wrapped up in all of this. Maybe I'm too um, like ne- like focused in and I and I can't see the broader picture. But like, how do you get away with voting against making insulin more affordable? Like, where where's the where's the political advantage in in voting against that piece of legislation? Like, I just truly don't understand. Like, I don't get how there's any political benefit conferred to this. Like. Whatever, we'll move on. Because it, it, it doesn't seem like it's actually, like, in some situations, I can see, like, whatever. I, I agree with the decriminalization of marijuana, but I can understand why some people might think that that's bad for their constituents. I guess. Devil's advocate here. My favorite, my favorite place to be. I'm a poli-sci major. Let's play devil's advocate for a second. Um... So I understand why some people might think their constituents will suffer a detriment because of the decriminalization of marijuana. Fine, sure. I don't understand how anybody, any any member of Congress could feel that their constituents are going to, you know, experience some kind of detriment because of the affordability of insulin. Because it seems like the only person that's going to suffer from insulin being more affordable is pharmaceutical companies, which, oh dear members of Congress, are not your constituents. Those are Those are companies. Pay attention to the individuals. So I guess that's it. I guess I just talked talked myself into it. Is that they're protecting pharmaceutical companies and they're not, they're not protecting their own constituents? Ooh, we're not gonna get into that. Okay. Um. 
So anyway, um, it, again, is there a path forward on these pieces of legislation? A little bit unclear. Um, and something that's been kind of a, 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 t- a hot topic over the past week, especially considering these pieces of legislation, um, is that there has been some some growing tensions between the House and the Senate. Tale as old as time. Um, the House is getting things done. The Senate is not, you know, getting those things across the finish line. They are kind of changing. They're, they're forcibly changing the priorities of the House because the legislation that's coming out of the House and the legislation that's coming out of the Senate are inherently going to look different because the Senate requires basically a Republican bill to pass um, because they need those 60 votes and they have such a slim margin that they, that they you know, all they can do is... Um, all they can do is compromise very, very heavily on a lot of those things. And of course, that's frustrating for the House when they produce a piece of legislation that actually meets a lot of their goals and they actually manage to get it through with like a pretty healthy margin and maybe like a handful of Republican votes as an added benefit. Shout out to Adam Kinzinger, who is retiring and literally doesn't care anymore. Um, he's a real one for that one, fam. Um, but he... But they, you know, so they produce this bill and they send it off to the Senate and the Senate rips it apart and tears it to pieces, puts it together into a Frankenstein version of it, sends it back to the House. And the House is like, this is not what we wanted. This is not what we planned. Um, and I just got to say, I do not understand. That was, a little, that was a little high school musical karaoke for you there. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, and again, the Senate having those those kind of different and obnoxious rules is always going to be a problem. Um, and I think that, yeah, members of the House are getting pretty frustrated about it. Um, and the Senate also is, is equally as frustrated with the House because they've been working on legislation that kind of addresses insulin and addresses a lot of the different things that they've been focusing on in a, a kind of a different way. And they're like, why did you, why did you try to pass that bill when we were just about to like start focusing on our bill? Um, and so there's, again, there's a tension between the branches. There is the tension between the parties. There's tension between leadership. There's tension between general members. So it's just a lot going on. Um, other members of Congress news, speaking of tension. Um, Representative Don Young of Alaska, who is the at-large at member of Alaska for years, um, passed away uh, recently. Um, and so, of course, this is a whole thing because he was a very senior member of Congress, um, very senior member of the party. He was in Congress for approximately a million years. Um, and it's also important because, I'm sorry not to be crude, but this is just the way it is, we now have an open seat in Congress. Um, and so it is going to be a fairly high profile um, election because of the candidates who have already announced. So the Democratic candidate that has announced ran for Senate last term. He's pretty cool. He's like a bear doctor or something. He's really cool. I'm kind of obsessed with him. I don't remember his name, but I remember that he wrote a song about being a bear doctor. A homie. A true homie. Anyway. And then, dun, 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 guess who else is running for Congress? Sarah Palin! This is not an April Fool's Day joke. Sarah Palin is running for the House seat in Alaska. Cue screaming, crying, and indeed throwing up. Oh my gosh. I saw a joke about it on Twitter yesterday, and I was like, that's a funny haha joke. And then I saw her statement, and I literally had to, like, put down my phone and, like, walk away. I was like, I can't. I can't do this anymore. Um, my favorite SNL bit of all time is I can see Russia from my house, as my dear family knows. Um, so hopefully this means that we'll get Tina Fey back on SNL to do um, to do Sarah Palin. Um, but that's pretty much all the good that can come from this. Uh, and as the besties on Twitter said, it's a bad thing for America, but a good thing for the memes. Cool. Um, and I have I have no idea what her actual popularity looks like in Alaska. But as a former governor, I can only assume that she has some institutional support there. So it'll be interesting to see like what her campaigning looks like. Um, kind of for like a lower position. I don't know, it's interesting. But also, tangentially, being being a guest star on the masked singer should automatically disqualify you from running for any office ever. You can't run for dog catcher if you at one point were on the masked singer. And guess who was on the masked singer? Sarah Palin. Also Rudy Giuliani. But we're not we're not gonna get into it. Lord. Okay. We're speed running now because I'm running out of time and I need to get to New Jersey. Okay. Madison Cawthorn. Guess what? We're talking about something dumb Madison Cawthorn said again. Um, 
he was uh, kind of in in the spotlight this week, specifically in the attention of the Republican conference this week. He went on a podcast and they were talking about like what members of Congress are actually like in real life. And he basically said that some of his colleagues attend orgies and use cocaine. So that was kind of fun for him. Um, it's so bad. And so everyone, a lot of members of the Republican Party are very mad at him. Um, Senator Tillis of North Carolina recently endorsed Cawthorn's primary opposition, um, and Kevin McCarthy admonished him publicly and privately. He no longer has the support of his own party. Um, he got, this week, he got called into the principal's office. So it was him, um, Whip Steve Scalise and Mike Johnson, who were assigned to be his mentors when he joined Congress. And for 30 minutes, Kevin McCarthy basically reamed him for for everything from what he just said to kind of all the missteps he's made in the past as we talked about last week him calling Zelensky a thug all these different things um and then also Kevin uh, Kevin McCarthy came out and admonished him publicly in front of a bunch of reporters as well um so he's pretty much been fully fully isolated from his from his fan base there uh, and I think a lot of members of Congress said that they initially were like, oh, we'll, we'll overlook all the dumb things you say because of your disability and because of your divorce and all these things. Um, but now, a year and a third in, they no longer care at all about what Madison Cawthorn has to say. Is this going to hurt Cawthorn moving forward? Maybe. He doesn't have that institutional support anymore. He's not getting any funding from the RNC. He's not getting Trump or McCarthy or anybody to come and stump for him. But he does have that grassroots support. But the question is, can he manage it? Can he turn that into a successful thing moving forward? Um, also, not having that institutional support is not a great look for him and does not mean that he is going to be rel- you know, necessarily super successful um, in the remainder of his time in Congress. If he does win another seat, he's not going to get good committee assignments, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and anyway, as Steve Cohen of Tennessee said, cringe. And it is indeed cringe. So... Last but not least, in fun New Jersey news, uh, the town of Irvington, New Jersey, just dropped their lawsuit against an 82-year-old woman who submitted what they decided was a voluminous and burdensome, quote, um, public records request. And I have been tracking the story all week, and it has been the highlight of my week. Um, She submitted 75 requests in a three-year span for township information via New Jersey's Open Public Records Act, which is not voluminous at all. 75 over three years? That's insane. But anyway, um, the town claimed that it would be too time-consuming and expensive to actually fulfill the request, and they argued that they were filed with the, quote, sole purpose and intent to harass, abuse, and harm plaintiffs and employees of the township, including its mayor. And my question there is, Why else are you submitting a public records request if not to get dirt on the mayor? Why else? Why else are you doing it? Um, So, of course, that's that's the sole purpose of ever submitting a public records request. Like, what? Anyway, so this woman who, uh, Ms. McDaniel, Queen, Eloise McDaniel, I love her. um, She's been in a political fight with the the mayor of Arrington for years, ran against him for mayor a couple years ago. Um, she's the president of a local nonprofit called Irvington Block Association Coalition, um, which is kind of like what she's been filing all of her requests under. And all I know is that <laughs> she's a girl boss of the highest order. Um, she, so she's been in a fight with the town council for a long time um, and in a fight with the mayor for a long time. And there's been a couple of cases that the that the town has been pointing to and like, look, no, she like she really has like a specific problem with us. Like this is not just like a political thing. Like she she has a problem with us. In 2017, she allegedly pointed at a township council person and said, I'm going to get you and you're going to pay. And then she allegedly disturbs the peace and otherwise acts in a confrontational and harassing manner at town council meetings. She is the drama of Irvington local town politics, and I hope she runs for governor. Um, if anything, her request was not all that bad. They did, they just didn't like that, that, uh, you know, she was causing political problems for them. Um, and, you know, there's, there's no limit to the amount of requests you can file. So she could have been, you know, the, the last time somebody had been sued 
for like too burdensome of a request. It was somebody who filed like 200, um, 200 requests in two months, something like that. Um, so it's really, it's really not, um, her, her actual request was not that burdensome. The issue was her long chain of, you know, her long, you know, all the events that led up to this in terms of her, you know, posing up like a political threat to, um, to the, to, to the mayor of Irvington, New Jersey. And I love her. And I think it's so funny because local politics is always fun and New Jersey politics is always fun. And so local New Jersey politics is just always just wild. Just wild. Um, so the ACLU was involved and she was being, uh, you know, represented pro bono by a lawyer. Um, they did end up dropping the suit this week, I think, after they experienced some public backlash after uh, after this story kind of went a little bit viral. Um, but it's still a truly fantastic story. And it just goes to show that if you want to um, be in the news, all you have to do is go to your local town council meetings. If you want to get famous, go to your local town council and just start problems. Just start problems. Um, so this is this is my this is my fun little message to go to your local town council meetings, submit public records requests, and just generally cause problems for people in power because that is your responsibility as an American citizen. You are perfectly allowed to you know, submit public records requests and try to get the information that you want. And for those in power to say that you are causing problems for them, it just shows that they're, you know, there's something that they're trying to hide. And there's something that they don't want you to find out about. Um, and that's why we have these institutions. That's why we have public town council meetings. That's why we have public records requests. It's for these exact reasons so that we can, you know, really see what's going on underneath the hood and see what's going on, um, for for you know those those in power our elected leaders they represent us they work for us we pay their wages and therefore they can they can deal with 75 public records requests over the past three years so with all of that being said i hope you enjoyed the story of eloise mcdaniel because i did again girl boss extraordinaire um that is all I have for you today, once again, I, I speed ran the last third of the show because I didn't think I was going to fit it all in. And then I did, which is typical, but that's all good. Um, if you want to engage with the story on social media, uh, engage with the story, engage with the show on social media, you can follow on Instagram at Cheap Thrills Radio and on Twitter at Cheap Thrills GW. And if you want to re-listen to the dulcet tones of Sheep Thrills, um, and just, you know, listening to me talk about nonsense, you can go onto Spotify and search Sheep Thrills, um, and you can listen to old episodes of the show there. Don't listen to the early episodes, though, because I'm pretty sure those are embarrassing. I mean, I'm pretty sure these episodes are embarrassing, but I'm pretty sure those episodes are really embarrassing. But anyway, that's all I wanted to talk about today. I hope you guys have a great rest of your week and a lovely rest of your Saturday. Um, and I am looking forward to talking with you in the next one. Have a great week. Talk to you later.